We'll look at Ecclesiastes 7, verses 13 through 18 this morning. <clears throat> Text is printed in the bulletin on the next page, and there, I think, are some Bibles on the back table if you need one of those. <clears throat> so, um, I've quoted from Phil Riken a lot. He's got a really good commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes. In that commentary, he tells the story... Um, he, he used to be the pastor at uh, 10th Presbyterian Church, which is a famous historic church in uh, Philadelphia, and his immediate predecessor, he was on staff with, uh, before he became the senior pastor, uh, was uh, James Montgomery Boyce. So maybe that name's familiar to you. He's, um, he was a, I guess, famous uh, <clears throat> author, pastor, theologian uh, guy, not uh, Maybe not famous like in the celebrity sort of sense, but uh, famous for good reasons. Uh, good, <clears throat> good Bible teacher, James Montgomery Boyce. So Riken tells a story of the last time that Boyce addressed his congregation at 10th Pres uh, before he died. He says that Boyce had been diagnosed with a fatal and aggressive cancer. He only had weeks to live. So Dr. Boyce raised a question that was based on the sovereignty and goodness of God. He asked... If God does something in your life, would you change it? And Riken continues, <clears throat> he says, to say this the way Ecclesiastes would have said it, if God gave you something crooked, would you make it straight? Would you change your disability or your disease? Would you change your job or your finances? Would you change your appearance or your abilities or your situation in life? <clears throat> Ecclesiastes would lead us to honestly admit that we would say, most likely, if we were in control, we'd do things differently. If we were in control, we would maximize our prosperity and we would minimize our adversity. Maybe even zero out the adversity part. If we were in control, life would be all pleasure and no pain. There'd be no suffering. But the Bible makes it clear that we're not in control, that God is in control, that God is sovereign. <clears throat> God is the Lord of all things, and he's the Lord of every moment. And in his sovereign control, he does things that make us to know our lack of control so that we would fear him as the Lord, so that we'd find our confidence for life in his control and not in ours. And that's something that's deeply unsettling. It shakes you all the way down to the foundations of who you are. But the gospel says that this is good. This is where you want to be. Fearing the Lord who has control over your life. That's where you want to be. That's what we'll talk about from Ecclesiastes 7 this morning. So let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, help us to consider your person and your work, your character and your will and your disposition toward us, who you are, what you're like, what you've done in ways that make a difference for how we face life in this world, we pray as we consider your word this morning. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Ecclesiastes 7, starting in verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vaporous life, I have seen everything. There's a righteous man 
who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of that is a little bit difficult to understand there, um, but we'll talk about it. So, uh, voice asks the question, if God does something in your life, would you change it? Or the way that maybe Ecclesiastes would put it, we rephrase it. If God gave you something crooked, would you make it straight? Would you want to make it straight? Would you try to make it straight? If you could. Right? If God in his uh, <clears throat> sovereignty brought about something in your life that you didn't like, some illness, some loss, some tragedy, some pain. If it were up to you, if you could do something about it, if you were in control, would you change it? So we can ask ourselves this question to consider what's going on inside of our hearts. I don't know, would I? We can think about that, but don't overlook the fact that this question is a hypothetical one. It's a hypothetical question. The question really is moot because you're not in control and you never will be. It's a rhetorical question that Ecclesiastes asks in uh, verse 13. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? Who can do it? The assumed answer is nobody. It's a rhetorical question, right? Nobody can make straight what God has made crooked. If God has brought something about in your life that you didn't like, that was really difficult, even that was... You could say evil. There's nothing you can do about it, really. And this is one of the most universal complaints that people have against God. Everybody in the world has this problem. That, that God has brought too many unfair things, too many awful, terrible, evil things into our lives. That's a reality. The, the fact that God has done this is a reality that the Bible boldly and unapologetically proclaims without embarrassment, without hesitation, or w- without wavering without trying to make excuses. The Bible emphasizes the fact that God is utterly sovereign, that God is in complete control over all things, over every moment, and this sovereignty includes his control over bad things that happen to us, the crooked things. There's something about this in almost every book of the Bible. Uh, I'll just mention a few of the most uh, startlingly clear passages that we could talk about out of all the scriptures. In the book of Genesis, um, Joseph's brothers... Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, which later landed him in prison, years of suffering, but which ultimately led to his becoming second in command in Egypt and in a position he found himself to provide global relief during a terrible famine. And Joseph later, when he was encountering his brothers, confronting them, really, in Genesis chapter 50, he says, you meant evil against me. And it was evil. He suffered all kinds of evil. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, right? So he suffered a real evil, terrible adversity, but it was ultimately something that he attributed to God's good providence. Anyone finding himself sold into slavery, anyone finding himself languishing in prison would have wanted to straighten out what God made crooked. God had made Joseph's life crooked, and it was good that he did that. 
it was good that he did that. Or take Job, another famous example. He's a good and righteous man whom God favored. God loved. God was the one who put Job on Satan's radar, right? He called Satan's attention to Job. And he explicitly authorized Satan to ruin the man's life. Job lost his children. He lost his servants. He lost his livestock, his wealth, his health, everything. And in the middle of his adversity and his terrible suffering, he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Didn't the devil take away? No. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He didn't charge God with wrongdoing. It wasn't a false accusation when he said the Lord took everything away from me. And it continues on. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Right? So God had made Job's life painfully crooked. Job confessed that. He's the one who made my life crooked. He confessed it in the clearest possible language. And the holy word of God confirms that it was not wrong for him to do that. That was a true confession. That was a good confession. Job had a good theology of God's sovereignty. Later in the book, he says in uh, chapter 42, he says, I know, he's praying to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So Job suffered adversity according to God's sovereign, unthwartable purpose. Listen to how the psalmist puts it as he attributes real omnipotence to the one true living God over and against all the false gods who are totally powerless. This is the power of God. That the psalmist says in 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. In the New Testament, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. So over and over again, the scriptures insist that God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass, which is how the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it. God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Uh, This is how Charles Spurgeon has famously put it, which I think is a quote here in the uh, bulletin printed there. He says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of sear, it's like brown, dead leaves, from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. So this is how I would put it, using the language that we find in Ecclesiastes here. Every crooked thing in your life has been ordained by the sovereign God. Every crooked thing has been ordained by the sovereign God so that there is nothing you can do about it. You can't even begin to comprehend God's control over your life, let alone manage it or change it or even resist it. Look at verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So when it's a good day, be glad. That's great. Enjoy it. Be thankful. It's right. That's, that's great. When it's a good day, when it's a bad day, consider, 
think about this. God made both good days and bad days. God is the one who makes our lives straight and the one who makes them crooked. And he has done this in order to confound us. Think about that. That's what it says. Consider this. So Phil Riken says, It's impossible for us to predict what will happen in coming days. We have no way of knowing whether the coming days will bring us greater prosperity or more adversity. So what's the point of trying to predict the coming days? What's happening in the coming days? What's... What's the point of predicting the future? Which is what God says he's not letting happen. He's not letting us predict the future. Think about a common example. Predicting tomorrow's weather. You've got an app on your phone that can do that. Why do you check it? Why did we develop the technology to be able to do that? What's the point of predicting the weather? It's so that you can prepare for it. So you can do something about it, right? Is tomorrow going to be a sunny day or a cloudy day? If I can figure that out, I can figure out how to be comfortable and safe on that day. We look to predict the future so that we can do something about it. It's, uh, it's like Marvel's Avengers Infinity War, Doctor Strange. He's doing his weird thing, his head's shaking. He's looking into the future, right? He's looking in the future, using the time stone to see 14,605 possible future outcomes of this great big galactic war that they're fighting so that they could try to arrange for the one future where they win. We look to anticipate the future so that we can win, so we can maneuver to achieve our desired outcomes. Prediction is the foundation for control. We think if we could discern a pattern in how God brings about Days of prosperity or days of adversity, a pattern in how God brings about sunny days or cloudy days in our lives, a pattern of when God seems to make things straight or when he makes them crooked, we could figure out how to be comfortable and safe and maybe even how to finagle more sunny days for ourselves. If we could figure out the future, we'd have some control. We think that if we could just understand how God works, what he wants, how to pull the levers, with him, then maybe we could figure out how to play the game to our advantage. How can we play the game of life to achieve the desired outcome? To get more days of prosperity out of God and less days of adversity. How can we manage God? How can we take control of the situation in order to make straight what God w- would have made crooked? We would change things. We would do things better if we were in control. So how do we get control? How do we get the upper hand in this game? How can I at least pretend for myself that I'm in control? And one of the main ways that people imagine that the game works, this is how the game works, right? Righteous people please God and get prosperity. Wicked people suffer adversity. That seems to be a universal religious impulse. It doesn't matter who you are in the whole world. Everybody believes that. You're a good person, a good righteous person, it's going to go well for you. You're a bad, evil, wicked person, it's going to go badly for you. But Ecclesiastes says, God doesn't play that game. He says in verse 15, in my vain life, my vapor life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. 
And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. That doesn't make sense. These things seem senselessly backwards and unfair to us. In God's sovereignty, he brings prosperity and he brings adversity. He's the one who does it. And we can detect no rhyme or reason, no pattern, no rules to the game, no way to anticipate or manipulate, no way to play the game. He doesn't just do it to toy with us, to keep us guessing, to keep us on our toes, to exasperate us or to grind us down. He does it so that we would fear him. So, some confusing verses here, 16 through 18. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you should take hold of this, this righteousness, and from that, this wickedness, not withhold your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Hard to understand. Ecclesiastes, uh, this first part, we're just tempted to think that he's saying this. He's not saying this. He's not saying you must strike a careful balance between righteousness and wickedness, and this is how you'll do well in life. It's exactly what he's not saying. He's saying, don't be righteous thinking that's how you play the game with God. Don't be wicked because that's obviously stupid. In fact, don't make your whole life about being righteous or being wicked or being this or that or anything at all because being something or being someone, being some kind of person, it means nothing. It doesn't help you predict or prepare or preside over your own life. In a sense, it doesn't matter who you are. It matters who you fear. Fearing the Lord is what will save you from this game. Fearing the Lord is the only alternative to trying to do your life better than God does it. Control... Control is an illusion. It's a desperate and futile illusion. Fearing the Lord is the only alternative to it. So you can either try to figure out the indecipherable pattern that God won't allow you to figure out and make straight what God has made crooked, which is never going to happen. God won't allow it. You can try to do that. Or you can fear the Lord. You can tremble before his sovereignty and accept and delight in his lordship and entrust yourself to his control. So when the first thing you want is control, then the last thing you want is for your control to be stripped away, to realize that you're utterly and entirely at the mercy of someone else, that you can do nothing to ensure days of prosperity or abolish days of adversity. When the first thing you want is control, the last thing you want is to fear God. A sovereign God who won't let you decipher the pattern or even begin to play the game. That's not what you want when you want control. When the first thing you want is control, the last thing you want is to fear God. That's the whole point of having control in the first place is to vanquish fear. Make it so I don't have to fear. But God knows that this is exactly what you need. You need to fear the Lord, which means giving up control. Anytime it's recorded in the Bible that someone had a vision of God, they encountered the living God, they stood in the holy God's presence, 
all pretense of control, which is what it is, it's pretense, pretending, all pretense of control went up in smoke and they were undone, trembling with fear before the sovereign Lord. You're at the mercy of the Lord. What are you going to do? You're going to fear him. The officers meet on Friday mornings for coffee. And uh, right now we're discussing a book by Michael Reeves. It's called Rejoice and Tremble, The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord. So he points out that the scriptures say it's a good thing to fear the Lord. And, and that is something that God is working to bring about in us. He's, he's working to cultivate the fear of the Lord in us. So uh, <clears throat> Reeves points your attention to the book of Exodus right after he gave the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And uh, this is a passage that's uh, printed here. Might as well read it. He says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, so that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So God comes near to us in ways that overwhelm us, that are well beyond our ability to comprehend or control, so that we would fear him and do what Moses does, fear him and draw near to him. Reeves says that the fear of the Lord is different from the fear of other things, in that the fear of other things makes us run away from them, while the fear of the Lord makes us run toward him. So, uh, another illustration. Lord of the Rings. I mean, you got Marvel and Lord of the Rings. That's all I got. Sorry. Um, when, uh, when Bilbo is getting old and he's about to retire, he's going to leave from Hobbiton and go to Rivendell, and Gandalf has discovered he has this magical ring. These things are dangerous. And uh, he's trying to convince him to leave this magical ring behind. It seems a very painful thing to Bilbo. It seems a very difficult thing. He can't let go of this thing. Bilbo feels threatened. And you get that scene, if you've seen the movie, <clears throat> where Gandalf rises up to his full height, his full imposing stature, and the lights darken around him and the walls seem to flex with his power. And he says in his most intimidating, sort of magically enhanced voice, Bilbo Baggins, do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. And Bilbo's afraid of Gandalf, but he runs toward him into the embrace of the one who he fears. It's a blessing, it's a privilege to fear the Lord. And God is good to bring it about in our lives, which he does as he allows us to endure circumstances in life where we realize we're not in control, he is. This is why Ecclesiastes tells us in verse 13, consider the work of God. And verse 14, in the day of adversity, consider God's confounding sovereignty. Consider it. Consider what you know of God. Consider what he is like, what he's revealed himself to be like. Consider the things he's done. He is sovereign and he's good. 
So whatever it is that he ordains, whatever he allows to come to pass in your life, whether days of prosperity or days of adversity, making things straight, making things crooked, it is ultimately always according to his good purpose. You're not in control. He is, so you're at his mercy. And he is merciful. And you fear him, and you can trust him, and you can find confidence in his sovereign goodness. This is the conclusion we can come to when we consider the work of God. What's the greatest work of God? Jesus. He's the righteous man who perished in his righteousness. More than anyone who ever lived, Jesus feared the Lord. His delight was in the fear of the Lord, the scriptures say. Isaiah 11. He knew that his father was absolutely in control of everything. And he knew that it meant he was going to die on the cross. He submitted. He didn't say, I would do things differently. I would change this. I would make straight what God has made crooked. He said, not my will, but yours be done. Even though it was something terrible, he didn't want it. It was painful. He knew he was going to die on the cross, but he submitted to God's sovereign plan And he entrusted himself to his father. He didn't try to manipulate God to control the situation. He didn't try to make straight what God was making crooked or to bring about a better outcome for himself, more days of prosperity. He feared God, and he followed where he led. And God afflicted his son with the most terrible adversity. And God was the one who did that. The worst thing that ever happened. His own disciples prayed this way in Acts chapter 4. Truly, in this city, there were gathered together against Your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, everybody in the whole world and all the rulers, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They're confessing God's sovereign control over the death of Jesus on the cross at the hands of evil men. God made his son's life crooked, more crooked than any other life. But it wasn't because God is oppressive that he did that. It wasn't because he's cruel. It's not because he's capricious. It's because God is good that he sent his son to the cross. We can believe it because Christ's death brought about our salvation. And we can believe it because God didn't leave his son to rot. He raised him from the dead and he exalted him above the highest heavens. So consider the work of God. Consider Jesus. Consider the life, death, and resurrection, the exaltation, glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul does in Romans 8, our New Testament reading that Travis read, when he concludes there that no adversity can separate us from the love of God. That means that the adversity God brings into our lives, it does not testify that God has turned away from us or turned against us, that he's evil or cruel or oppressive or anything. The sovereign Lord ordains all things for the good of his people, Romans eight twenty eight. Even if that good is well beyond our comprehension, well beyond our control, well beyond our earthly experience, if God has delivered his own son over to death for you, then you can rest assured that whatever you face in life is coming from the hand of the father who would do that, who would give his own son's life for you. Consider your circumstances then in light of the work of God, which is revealed to you in the gospel. There's relief, there's freedom, there's confidence, there's peace. 
There's real security to be found in knowing that this good God is in control of your life and you're not. Fear him. And remember this when you come across some part of your life that God's made crooked. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to know you truly and confidently in the gospel. Help us to be persuaded of your goodness, your sovereign goodness. Help us to assess our circumstances in light of who you are and in light of what you've done, rather than judging you and your goodness by how we perceive our circumstances. Help us to consider how your sovereignty is seen in Jesus and therefore how we can know that your sovereignty is good for us. Help us to fear you and to be saved from our desperate need for control and managing our lives. Help us to fear you and to run toward you rather than away from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.